The sermon text this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, this morning we have the privilege of savoring Jesus Christ together and being so comforted and reassured by what he has done for us that we, we can't go on living the same way. This is the intention of the author of Hebrews. This is how we change. This is how we are transformed by beholding his glory. So we are being summoned this morning by this text because Jesus laid down his life for us and now serves as our great priest. We should confidently draw near to enter God's presence, holding fast our faith in him in the midst of trial and we should consider how best to encourage one another, especially remembering to regularly gather together in view of his return. This was a needed word to the Hebrews as the audience of this letter has been called since ancient times. It's assumed that the church who received this letter was mainly former Jews who had come to faith in Christ. We don't know the author, but we know he spent time with this church and he longed to return to them. They aren't new to the faith. Some of their leaders have already passed away. So this church has been around for a while and they've got, some, they've got some battle scars. State persecution is not a new thing for them. Uh, the author wants them to remember those former days because they were faithful through it. They, they cared for one another well through that ordeal. You see it there in verses 32 through 34. But now persecution has returned and they're not holding up as well as they once did. In fact, there's indication that this church is not doing well spiritually. He says in chapter 5, you have become dull of hearing, so they don't pay attention to good instruction. He says, by this time you ought to be teachers. He says, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And he warns them about diverse and strange teachings that are threatening the church. He says, do not be led away. So this church hasn't matured in the faith. Some of them have stopped coming to worship altogether. So these are the circumstances that prompt the writing of this letter to this church. One commentator called the letter to the Hebrews a tonic for the spiritually debilitated. Well, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you find yourself in the midst of a trial and you seem to have lost your way. For the church of the Hebrews, there was this external threat of the culture and even the government pressing against them. But there was also this spiritual lethargy, this spiritual sluggishness that came from within. 
In fact, the author is concerned that some of them may be falling away from the faith. So he exhorts them with many warnings to persevere by fixing their eyes on Jesus Christ. That's the invitation this morning to everyone here, whatever your circumstances. Well, this passage is beautifully interwoven with gospel indicatives and gospel imperatives. What do I mean by that? Well, in case you think I'm being too technical here with these big grammatical words, I think this will actually be really helpful to you in your own study of the word or perhaps in small groups. If you start looking for it, you're going to see it all over the scriptures. The indicatives are those doctrinal statements of fact that we rest in. They're like bedrock under our feet. It's all the declarations of what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. So the indicatives define us. They they tell us who we are. They give us a new identity. The imperatives then tell us what to do. These are the commands of Scripture. And the logical order here is critical. The indicative always comes first, then the imperative who we are in Christ, then how we are to live in response. So that logical order is critical. Theology undergirds ethics. Identity shapes behavior. Who we are, then what we're supposed to do. And you can't reverse the order. That's what every non-Christian religion does, where what we do for God determines who we are before him. That is not Christianity. Now we believe God graciously sets his love on us. He rescues us. He calls us to himself. He gives us a new position in Christ. And then we go and live for his glory according to his commands. So there's an order to it and it's a package deal. So friends, you desperately need to hear both of these things. Who you are and how you should then live. How many of us over the course of our Christian lives have gotten ourselves into trouble by by neglecting one or, or the other of these two things. Where you might say, I am free in Christ, therefore I can dispense with the spiritual disciplines. That's so old covenant. I actually heard a preacher say that one time. Well, you are confused, and, and that's immaturity talking. Of course, the other side of the horse to fall off on would be legalism. And many of us here, we know our theology well, that no one is made right with God by our works. And yet a seed of doubt remains. We're not so sure how the Father thinks about us. And so we find ourselves relying more on our performance of religious duties and working fastidiously to maintain approval in the eyes of other people rather than resting in the finished work of Christ. And, and really, this whole concept of indicative and imperative it doesn't require a lot of explanation for one with childlike faith. You know it intuitively because the Spirit dwells within you. You say, I have a Savior who has bled and died for me. He loves me. Therefore, I trust him. I have a new master now. So I hang on his words. Once you know who you are in Christ, you love to please him. You want to obey his commands. Doing what he says is your joy out of sheer gratitude. All true believers know this, though they may need reminding from time to time. Hence, the letter to the Hebrews. Now, there are three clear imperatives in this passage. Just look for the words, let us. 
But I'd like to first anchor them in the granite bedrock of this gospel indicative. We have a priest who has offered himself. So we all have doctors, many of us have financial advisors, some of us have lawyers, but I want to remind you this morning that you have a priest. Why would you need one? Well, a priest is a mediator, a representative between you and God, and you need a priest before this God. Chapter four, verse 13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You will not escape this accounting. All of us will stand before him and no moral posturing is available to you to cover yourself with. What will you bring? What could you possibly say? You have sinned. You've desired things you ought not desire. You've said things that should have never been uttered, things that have wrecked relationships and dishonored God, and you've done dark deeds. Chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But if you're here and you believe, you have a mediator between you and this holy God. You have an actual person who is your representative before God. You see how the author uses the personal name Jesus in verse 19. This priest is an actual human being who is fitted to be your representative. Jesus has come and he has said to you, I will go for you. I will speak for you. And rather than offering the blood of bulls and goats, he offers himself. This priest does what no other priest could do. He spills his own blood. The author has been making this point for several chapters now. The supremacy of Christ over all other priests and all other old covenant institutions. Just listen to this description of our great high priest. Chapter 7, starting in 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now those are some sweet words. Jesus lives to make intercession for you. Chapter 10, verse 10 tells us that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So if you're a Christian, you can say, I have been sanctified through the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ. I've been set apart, I've been made holy, and this work is completed. Nothing remains once for all. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I'm just giving you one glorious gospel indicative after another. So the Christian can say, Jesus has perfected me for all time. He has earned my perfection before God. And at the same time, I am being sanctified. I am growing in holiness. And this is what's true of me as a Christian because of what my priest has done. 
verse 17. This is God speaking. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So the Christian can say, this is what God promises in the new covenant. He will remember my sins no more. How many of us desperately need to hear that this morning? God will remember your sins no more. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So I have been forgiven and there is no need for any further offering to atone for them. The old covenant sacrificial system has passed away and any other personal atonement project we might come up with as well, it's done, it's over. Christ has come, he has died He's offered himself in my place. And verse 12 tells me that he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, which means he is alive and he is reigning. Do you see why we need gospel indicatives? You have to preach these things to yourself. Every morning, you gotta wake up and say, I have a great priest over the house of God and I am a member of that household. That will change your life. You see the therefore in verse 19, so the author, he's, he's turning a corner here. Based on all he said before, since all of this is true, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since we have this authorization to come into the holy presence of God, three things, let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast our confession and let us encourage each other face to face. So, Those are our three imperatives. Draw near to God, hold fast your confession, encourage each other face to face. We'll take those one by one. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now remember, there was a curtain that once marked off the most holy place in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the Ark represented the very presence of God of God. No one was allowed beyond the curtain, not even the priests, only the high priest. And, but once a year, and even then he had to come bringing a sacrifice for his own sins first. The veil was ripped from top to bottom in the temple at the time of Jesus' death, at the time of our atonement for all those who believe. The author compares this ripped curtain to the body of Christ through which we can enter the holy presence of God. So we come not in the old way through the blood of bulls and goats, but by the new and living way. It's not through a code or a ritual, it's through a person. Take note of those those. those few short words there in verse 20. He opened for us. Do you see what Jesus has done for us? Nothing now stands between us and God. I think many of us live our lives lingering at the threshold, holding back from God and from other people, saying, I can't come in. I cannot draw near. I cannot come inside. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. I can't come inside. But remember what Jesus has done for you in his priestly office. As Moses sprinkled the people with blood, your heart has been sprinkled clean 
from an evil conscience. Moses could only perform an external ritual purification. Christ goes to the root of our need, even to the conscience. And it says, our bodies have been washed with pure water. This could be a reference to baptism, or the author could have the promise of the new covenant in mind here. As it says in Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And again, this is no mere ritual cleansing, but a thorough heart, soul, and body washing. Because the very next sentence there in Ezekiel, it says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. We have every reason to draw near to God with full assurance of faith. The theologian Sinclair Ferguson said, the determining factor of my existence is no longer my past. It is Christ's past. Chapter four, verse 15. Remember what the priest has done and remember his character. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you have a place at the table. You can draw near, you can come inside because the priest is sympathetic. You don't have to remain at a distance. What should your prayer life look like then? Prayer should be a reflex for you. You should tell Jesus everything. Whatever's occupying your mind, come and talk to him. Plead before him. Confess your sins to him. Lament before him. Thank him. Praise him. People will tell me their troubles and I'll ask, have you talked to God about it? And often they'll say, no, I haven't. So we have such a priest. Let us draw near by faith. This is a call to faith. Susan Schellebarger member of this church, member of my care group. Uh, We were talking about trusting God, I think it was, in one of our care group meetings, and she said, when you're in a cave of darkness, don't let the candle of faith go out. That's right. We have to draw near in full assurance of faith, lay hold of Christ again in such times. The second imperative the author gives is that we should hold fast The confession of our hope. When we hear the word confession, we normally think of the confession of sin. Well, here we have the confession of our hope. When you you confess something, you're declaring it to be true. So holding fast the confession of our hope would be a continued loyalty to the gospel of Jesus Christ in how we live and particularly how we speak. After all, a confession is done with the mouth. We first make this confession at our baptism, but our Christian witness should continue for the rest of our lives. And this is a theme the author has already touched on, chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So again, the indicative motivates the imperative. We have a great high priest, therefore, let us hold fast our confession. Here in verse 23, this priest has made promises to us and he's faithful. 
God will not go back on his word. He will not abandon us, even in the midst of persecution. So we can hold on, we can endure without wavering. Now, you're not tempted to waver in your Christian witness unless there's something pushing against you, right? It's easy to hold fast when there's no cost for doing so. But when the cultural pressures come, holding those Christian convictions a little more loosely sure would make life a lot easier. Better to keep my devotion to Christ a little more vague and undefined. No doubt this was the temptation for this church as persecution was heating up. Perhaps they were tempted to go back to Judaism, a little more culturally palatable. Clearly some of them were just opting out of public worship. Maybe they feared facing hostility or perhaps they simply had lost interest. Remember he says they've become dull of hearing. So the author has been heralding the supremacy and immeasurable worth of Jesus Christ to this church and therefore he's, he's called them to draw near to God by faith and to hold fast their confession of their hope and finally he calls them to minister to one another, to encourage one another face to face. So do you see how all of these imperatives, they, they're worked out by the last one. Our faith is not abstract. It's fleshed out in real relationships with other believers in a local church where Christians gather. So I need, I need you to help me draw near to God and hold fast my confession. We help each other persevere in the faith. And this will require some careful intentionality. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good work. So we're to be watchful over each other. We've got to pay careful attention to each other and to spur one another on toward love and deeds of love. So talking to each other about how we're walking out the faith at work or in relationships, in marriage, in parenting, and then actually watching each other do that in person has a powerful Effect. So if I'm here on a Sunday morning and I see a dad tenderly talking to his son, it's not just what, his, what he says that, that strikes me, but his, his posture, his tone of voice, hand on the shoulder, that, that, is, that is an example I want to imitate. And I've gotten to see that here as the church has gathered. Uh, maybe there's a man or a woman who is enduring a significant loss, maybe a relationship not realized, maybe unemployment, And yet here they are, Sunday after Sunday, worshiping with us, trusting God and hopeful. And they're asking how they can pray for me while they endure this hardship in the background of their lives. When you have encounters like that, you're stirred up to excel in your love for others. And the closer your proximity to that good influence, the more impact it's gonna have on you. John Chrysostom Uh, one of the early church fathers, he said this, as iron sharpens iron, so also fellowship increases love. For if a stone rubbed against a stone sends forth fire, how much more person in contact with person? Let us consider. So think seriously about how to do this well. 
Ironically, I wonder if our evangelical ethos is, is even helpful to us in this regard. There are a lot of really sharp ministries out there. Uh, there's BSF, there's Awanas at that church to take, take your kids to. Uh, there's that Bible study downtown you've gone to for years. And no doubt these things are encouraging and instructive, but I'd ask you to encourage how much time and energy and personal resources are diverted from this congregation, the people you've actually covenanted with as members in order to participate in, in those other things and those other relationships. They are no doubt helpful to some extent, but are they as helpful as investing in the people right here at Christ Covenant? We only have so much time. We only have so much time. Consider how your capacity to encourage and stir up the saints here is diluted by the Christian buffet of options available to you. And some of you might say, man, that sounds like a cult. Are you saying everything's got to come under your roof? Well, first of all, it's not my roof. Christ is the head of the church. I'm not trying to be heavy-handed here. I'm, I'm just trying to help you better understand the nature of the church and the privilege we have here of serving one another well. And I think it would help you to reckon with the reality of limited time and energy and relational capital that we're all contending with in our busy lives. Let us consider. Well, clearly in this church of the Hebrews, the bonds of Christian fellowship were waning. Uh, some had the habit of neglecting to even meet together. Tom said, someone once told him, I could be a Christian without going to church. And he said, that's like saying, I'm married, but I never go home to my wife. Doesn't make any sense. I'll give you two reasons. Number one, it expresses a lack of understanding regarding the nature of the Christian life. So as you look across the room, and you consider the members of this church, Jesus spilt his blood for that one and for that one, and for that one, and even for you. Do you see the common bond God has forged between us in the gospel of his son? We are now brothers and sisters in the household of God. We've been adopted into the same family, members of the same body. We are a people for God's own possession. And if you look again at how Jesus is described in verse 21, he is a great priest over the house of God. He is a priest over a people. His shed blood is what binds our community together. So an individualistic, private, Lone Ranger type of Christianity is in defiance of the priest and what he came to accomplish. And it also shows a grievous deficiency of love. How can you encourage your brother in the faith if he rarely sees you at church? How can you comfort your grieving sister if you're not there to cry with her? Danielle and I served in Croatia several years ago and I almost lost her. She was thrown in the back of an ambulance, driven to the hospital. I, I, it was a massive complex. I didn't know where she was. I was standing there by myself in the lobby. And I don't know how the lady at the reception desk knew who I was. I guess I was the only trembling, crying American in the room. But she hands me a phone. 
and it's my wife. And she said, I just asked the doctor if I'm, if I'm going to die. And he said, I hope not. And so we had what we thought was going to be the very last conversation we ever had. And I'm, I'm a complete mess. Two of my brothers, two Christian men come in the door. One American, one Croatian. They take me outside. They sit me on a bench. There was not much to say. They prayed for me, but they felt like pillars. One on my right, one on my left. And they sat with me for an hour and a half until my wife came out of surgery. Their physical presence was such a comfort to me. Now, I would have gladly received a text or an email from a friend saying they were praying. I would have taken any calls that came from family or friends. It wasn't possible at the time, but I would have jumped on a Zoom call in an instant to be with someone, kind of. Still, none of that could have replaced those two brothers sitting next to me. And our little Protestant church just gathered around us for several weeks as she recovered. Do you love the people here? Do you enjoy being in their presence? Do you talk to them? Do you know what their hurts are? Do you know what burdens they're carrying? I realize I'm talking to those who are here for Sunday worship, uh, but maybe it's been a month since you've been with us, and that's pretty much your pattern. Why is that? Could it be that the reason you're so nonchalant about being here on Sunday morning is that you don't really care much for the people of God? And here's where some of us might need to check the pulse of our faith. John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now there is an ocean of comfort in this passage, but there is also a stern warning in the immediate context Verse 19, since we have confidence. Verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. Verse 22, let us draw near. But verses 38 and 39 warn us about shrinking back. So a diminishing love for God's people is an indication of a diminishing love for God, which in the end leads to destruction. And that's why we are exhorted to stir one another up to love and good works, and to regularly gather together. The author, he's already talked about this. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So how how do we take care? How do we keep from falling away from God? Very next sentence but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We owe one another a vital ministry. So just go ahead and settle it in your mind. I am a servant to the other members of this church. We are not here to consume, but to provide and to watch over one another's souls. Paul tells the Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Oh, that God would give us such a heart for one another. Now, how does this apply in the middle of a pandemic? 
especially this call to regularly gather together. Are there times when meeting together for worship is not possible? Well, of course. In the unfolding plan of God, at times there are hindrances to gathering together. Some of our members are physically unable to attend. They, they live in nursing homes. Or you might have some kind of prolonged illness that prevents you from being with us. Or perhaps you have mandatory military service. Or war between nations has kept the people of God from being able to gather in times past. Or there's a public health crisis where the government, doing its duty for a time, limits gatherings of people across the board. You've seen how the leadership of Christ's covenant has responded this year. We've had to make some significant changes to how we meet and how we conduct our ministries. We've had to navigate a situation that no living pastor has ever had to face. And God will evaluate our decisions. I can't say they have been prayerfully made. Some of our elderly members or those who are otherwise compromised in their health, have decided to refrain from Sunday worship for the time being. Uh, We have some members who are actively caring for their aging parents, and so they've had to take a much more cautious approach to being around others. And for these various cases, we have expressed understanding. And many of these folks continue to worship from home as best they can, faithfully watching the sermon. They're staying in contact with their care group. Uh, They're zooming into a Bible study. They're actually replying to a pastor when he sends them an email or leaves them a voicemail. These kinds of things reassure us that you're doing okay. You're trying to engage with the body and encourage one another as best you can in these very difficult circumstances. But there are some, we fear, who have slipped into a spiritual sluggishness, much like the Hebrews of this letter. So maybe you haven't made a clear and conscious decision to not attend. It's been more subtle. COVID has provided you a convenient cloak to disengage from the church. And you think, you know, it's just, it's just easier not going in. You don't have to fuss with all of the talk with people and being frustrated by people. There's that guy that gets under my skin. I'm just more comfortable at home. Well, if you can't hear yourself deceiving yourself, you are in a very dangerous spiritual position. No one plans to fall away from the faith. But your persistent absence from worship is a step in that direction. And I I would remind members that you signed a membership covenant promising, I will love God's glory by attending church faithfully. You put your name to that. So this is a commitment to keep, but but it's also a great gift that should not be neglected. Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor in World War II. He said this, It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. 
one conclusion I want to offer us the very best that I can give, and that is to remind you of your priest who has offered himself, one who has approached God on your behalf and has washed you clean from your sins by spilling his own blood. Fix your eyes on him because if your heart is captivated by Jesus Christ, you will be compelled to draw near and to hold fast and to encourage one another face to face. Let's take a few moments now to ponder these things and then I will pray for us.